Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. So we completed down through verse 17 last week, and as I mentioned this morning at the outset, um, this is no doubt, beginning in verse 18 through 22, the most difficult passage in the epistles of Peter, and it's one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament and the Bible. So, because of that, I'm going to give you an introduction this morning. I doubt I'll finish this. I won't finish it, I don't think, in two weeks, but it will probably take three weeks for us to get through this passage. I do want you to remember that what we're looking at here is a long passage on suffering and Peter's writing to comfort those that are suffering. So we'll talk about context, we'll look at a number of things this morning, but primarily we're going to focus on verse 18, but I want to pick up with verse 18 and read through verse 22. If you've never read this passage, it's going to seem strange to you, but uh, there are numbers of passages in Scripture that indeed are strange. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, having been made subject to him. So may God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. Let's go to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. And remind us again this morning, in fact, convict us, because sometimes when we come to these passages, we want to skip right over them. And our thought is, our negligence is, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, remind us, Father, that you have given us the word in order that it might edify us, make us mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we praise you this morning for your wisdom, and we ask for that wisdom and the insight of these, of these verses. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So when you go back and you uh, pick up with uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 and go through verse 19 of chapter 4, we're looking at a, a fairly lengthy passage that uh, I've entitled, Hurting Together for the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> the first slide, if you would, uh, Mr. Logan. <coughs> These verses, 18 through 22, is focusing on Christ's victorious suffering. So we never get away from suffering in First Peter. 
And in fact, he mentions it briefly in 2 Peter. <coughs> but primarily the focus that he has here in this first epistle is writing to individuals that indeed were suffering, that were afraid that they were going to have to suffer, afraid of forthcoming per persecution, and Peter himself was enduring it. So remember that when you look at this passage of Scripture. Uh, it, this is, uh, as I said, the most difficult passage in the epistle. And I want to remind you that about 95% of all Scripture is clear, it's logical, and it contains truth. In fact, all of Scripture contains truth, and this passage does as well. It contains truth in either narrative format, which is most of the Old Testament, or propositional format, or the propositional truth, the objective truth that we talked about at length last Sunday morning, talking about worldviews. Now that said, that also means that there is a portion of Scripture that it, it's, uh, it's a, I won't say minor, I don't want to use the word minor because all Scripture is important and this is too. But about 5% of Scripture is extremely difficult. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is when we look at the Bible, we assume that we can read this, and as Americans, we read this, and this, you know, we ought to be able to readily understand everything. But I would remind you again that we're looking at the mind of God. And in this passage in particular, we are looking at a something that occurred even in Peter's day thousands of years before, and for us, no doubt, four, five, maybe 6,000 years ago, maybe more. So, although the Bible speaks to this, it's important to remember that there, the Bible does contain apocryphal language, and everybody says, oh, the book of Revelation is so difficult. Not necessarily. This passage is quite a bit more difficult than the passages in the book of Revelation. And that's because this passage has to do with comfort in our salvation. Its theological content is about salvation. And that's why it's important. And we'll expand on it as we move through it. But one of the issues here is that Peter writes in Corne Greek. In fact, some of Peter is written in classical Greek. It's the only book in the Old Testament, first and second Peter, excuse me, in the New Testament, rather, that is written with some format of classical Greek. The rest of the New Testament is written in Corne or conversational Greek. So when you come to this passage, it does not lend itself easily to English translation. Uh, I'll expand on that more next week than this morning. But here's the thing. It is incumbent upon us always to read Scripture in its context. Always. Absolutely always in context. And the task of the expositor, and that's my responsibility, to expose the scripture, the task is always clear. 
if we cannot plumb the depths of these mysteries and align them with all of the remainder of Scripture, then we have two responsibilities. The first one is to state the primary points as clear as we can, which we will endeavor to do. And the second one is every bit as important. To avoid major error without building a novel doctrine on obscure passages. And there are novel doctrines that have been built on this particular passage. We won't broach those this morning. We will begin next Sunday morning to look at them. And by that I mean doctrines that have not been readily accepted by the reformers and by you and I today as Baptists. So remember that. It is important not to look for evidence to support heterodoxy or heterodoxical statements, which is basically something that is contrary to or different from an acknowledged standard a traditional form, or an established religious doctrinal teaching. We can use the word unorthodox. Hetero means outside of. Ortho means within. And unconventional ideas. Unfortunately, many have read this passage and other passages, and they have lifted it, lifted it entirely out of context and built major themes of theology about this that are not contained in this scripture. Now, Peter, this is the third Christological passage in 1 Peter. Turn back to chapter 1. We're going to be about the Word of God this morning, so I hope you have your Bibles. We have few Bibles. You can follow along there. Uh, chapter 1 and verse um, well, let's see, 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Sounds very similar to what we just read in verse 18. For Christ also suffered. It is. He suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. A quote from Isaiah 53, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judged, judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd, an overseer of your souls. This particular passage, which we've just read here, verses 18 through 22. This is the third Christological. In other words, it exalts Christ. That is a doxology. 
Uh, and it's about, this passage is about suffering. And Peter is comforting scattered believers with example after example of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So, verses 18 through 22, primarily, talked about primarily, primarily focus on the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Next slide. Now, there are parallel passages couple of them, one of them written by Paul, uh, one of them written by the author of uh, the book of Hebrews, and then Peter and Second Peter and Jude. Now I want to read these because they help to, to interpret what Peter is saying here. So let's go to Romans chapter 14. <coughs> Scripture is always the best interpreter of other scripture. Not our logic, not our reason. We talked about that last Sunday morning. <clears throat> For to this end, Paul writes in Romans 14, 9, <clears throat> Christ died and rose and lived again. That's what Peter said. He suffered the just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Parallel. Go to Hebrews 2. Verse 14. <clears throat> Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Do you fear death? Yes, we do. It's the last great enemy. And so the writer here is expressing to us the great sacrifice that Jesus made and conquering the power of death, he says, that is the devil. All right, go to 2 Peter chapter 2. When we started 1 Peter, we came to a passage about angels, and we uh, preached a message or two on holy angels. And I reminded you that Peter talks uh, about demons and talks about uh, principalities and authorities and so forth throughout his epistles, and we will cover that in detail when we get to it. And here's, here's a, a fairly long passage here in, in chapter 2 of 2 Peter that parallels what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood 
on the world of the ungodly, and then he goes and talks about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the, of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So a passage about judgment on fallen angels, on Sodom and Gomorrah, on the antediluvian world, the world in which Noah lived. And then Jude 6. Jude being the half-brother of our Lord. We preached through the little book of Jude uh, a couple of years ago now. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And he, Jude also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah as well. So these are parallel passages, and in looking at these, it helps us give some understanding as to what Peter is writing. And again, I say he is writing to comfort individuals, as he said here in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Lord knows how to deliver his people out of tribulation. He delivered his son after Christ died through the resurrection and the ascension. Not just the resurrection, the ascension. So we begin to see the table being set, if you would. Now, here's part of the rub. Paul is, the writings of Paul tend to be um, more logical or he follows an order. Paul was a, uh, was a rabbi. He was also a lawyer, a very learned individual. And so in his writings, we find, uh, yes, there are some difficult passages, but by and large, as you read through the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, they, they follow a sequence. They are more in line with the way the English-speaking people of the world think. We have some list makers in our congregation this morning. And you like to put down lists. This is what I want, number one. This is what I want, number two. This is what... Well, that's not unique to you, and you didn't make it up. That's a Greco-Roman thing. It's also a Jewish thing, and Paul is one of the apostles that expressed that clearly in his writings. Peter, not so much. Peter's a fisherman. And although he's an extremely intelligent man, his ability to use classical Greek in his writings here, but he's tangential. He is more in line with the writings of the Old Testament. You're reading, the, especially when you come to the prophets of the Old Testament, and they'll, they'll write about a particular event that's going to take place, and then they jump, wait! hundreds of years before they write about that. Then they come back because they're not interested in English-speaking people. They're interested in following the direction of the Holy Spirit. 
So Peter covers, his teachings uh, cover the important events, and he will come back and return time and time again to events that he mentioned back as we just read in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And in cha he's going to re refer back to this passage in chapter 3 again in 1 Peter, and he's referred to it again in 2 Peter. So it's important to remember that. This will help you to understand when you come to a, uh, the Gospels are, are written. Matthew is very ordered in his uh, commentary. So is Luke. Mark, not so much. John was a, a completely different, had a, a completely different approach. So it helps you understand that the 40 authors of the Bible, each one of them wrote using their personalities. I write differently then you would write, and you write differently than I would write. doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just the way, again, it's our worldview, the way we look at the world. So Peter, let's go back now to 1 Peter. Peter wants us to understand at the beginning that Christ died for sins unjustly. That's what he says, suffered once for sins the just for the unjust. You may be here this morning and perhaps this is one of the first times uh, of your exposure to Jesus or maybe you're tuning in or you're listening. This morning I want to remind you of this. Jesus was the just one. That means in him was no sin. And so his death on the cross was an unjust death. He was convicted of crimes that he did not commit. Do you know what the major crime was that Jesus was crucified for? Blasphemy. Because he said and taught that he was God. That's why... The Jews said, we have a law, and by our law, he ought to be put to death. He's made himself to be God. So, Peter uses the phrase, the just, the just one of God, for the unjust. That's me. You're in there. You and I are in there, the unjust. You may all jot that in, in your Bible. That's me, the unjust. He jumps to the end. He is talking about the suffering of Jesus. Then he talks about a victorious celebration. And then he jumps to the end of this particular passage, teaching us that he triumphed through his resurrection, put to death unjustly, but triumphed through his resurrection. And he now resides at the right hand of God. And notice what the end of verse 22 says. Look at what it says. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. In spite of all the suffering, in spite of all the gross injustice that could have been perpetrated on a fellow human being, especially God the Son, he conquered death, he conquered suffering, and triumphantly he is seated and has authority over, notice what it says, angels, and authorities, things that are in heaven and things that are on earth. That includes you and I. That's what Peter is teaching. Now, Peter is keen 
to teach and that you and I understand that all the demonic spirits, and we'll look at this beginning next week. not going to spend a great deal of time because when we get to Second Peter, I'm going to spend more time on it. But all those demonic spirits were part of his suffering. When I preach, sometimes I will say that Jesus suffered temptation and persecution in manners of which we will never suffer. And this is why. The principalities, the fallen angels, the devil himself. Perpetrated injustices on the Son of God. We'll never have that happen in our lives. Never. Now we may be tempted. We have an advocate with the Father. The Scripture teaches us. We can confess that and make it right before him, but we are never to think that any believer can be possessed of a demon. Can't. Can we be perhaps tempted by them? Yes. But we cannot be possessed. So on Calvary, Jesus suffered in a manner that you and I will never suffer. This comes to the mental ang anguish of what he suffered. With all the complications of this particular passage, the message is, you're looking at the primary message here, the message is that Jesus, through suffering unjustly, my unrighteousness, my injustice toward God was placed on him, yours too. He triumphed through that. He suffered for his obedience. Sometimes we suffer for our obedience. Oftentimes we don't because we're disobedient. But sometimes we do. And God the Father caused him to triumph over the authorities, we just read in verse 22, and powers beyond our comprehension. There will be no negotiation at the great white throne judgment. There will be no banter. There will be no conversation. There will be no advocate at the great white throne judgment. This is part of what Peter is teaching in these last few verses. Although Christ suffered, he has completely sustained all angels and authorities. So, Peter wrote, verses 13 through 18, we spent a couple of weeks looking at 13 through 17, and he's focused there on a ready faith, or rather we were looking at focusing on a ready faith, a reason for the hope that lies within you, and a reliable conscience. We covered this last Sunday morning. Next slide, if you would, brother. So, what we're going to look at beginning this morning over these next couple of Sundays is in verse 18, the reality of a risen Savior. 
verses 19 through 21, the example of a ridiculed Noah. And that example is important because of what Noah endured, Peter is saying that you're living in a time, he's writing to these people in the Roman Empire, and he said you're living in a time when the ridicule is going to be severe. It may be as severe as Noah. He is writing to believers today, 2023. There may be a time when the ridicule you endure will be every bit as severe as what Noah endured. Now, the difference between you and I and Noah is that Noah preached 420 years and Noah lived hundreds of years. You and I won't. So his endurance, his perseverance, is part of what Peter is teaching in this passage. And in verse 22, we'll look at the reign of the risen Jesus Christ. So let's focus this morning as we started to look at verse 18. Now, verses 18 and 19 are poetic. In fact, there are some that have made a, a hymn out of what we read here, especially verse 18. And the indi indication of Jesus suffering unjustly and the fact that God the Father vindicated this suffering by raising him from the dead. Now, our suffering likewise will be will be uh, vindicated when Jesus comes or we pass through the veil of death into heaven. So Jesus was resurrected back to life. There's some beautiful language that is contained in this passage. Now here's the thing. If Jesus' father followed through with God the Son, he promised him, made a promise to God the Son. Then it follows that God the Father will also vindicate his church, his people. The Lord knows how to deliver his people out of tribulation. It doesn't mean that we avoid tribulation. Did Noah avoid it? No. Did Jesus avoid it? No. Are we to avoid it? No. But he knows how to deliver us. Now, verses 18 through 22, if you take verse 18 and you look at the verbiage that is used here, and then you jump ahead and look at verse 22, which we just read uh, a moment ago. There, there are this, there's a play on words here. Well, what does this have to do with me, preacher? Well, it has a lot to do with you. Because the paragraph or the sentences of the verses 19 through 21 are interjected after verse 18 and then before verse 22 to give us an understanding that Peter is talking about the unjust uh, the just Jesus Christ being having our unjust, our injustice placed on him, and yet he triumphed and is now overall. And then there's this paragraph that takes place that is an example to us because of the ridicule of Noah. He is writing to comfort 
these people that have been that have been scattered abroad in Asia Minor. Now, this is what he says. He was put to death in the flesh. I've interjected the phrase by men. Christ was killed by men. Peter said this, the same Peter that wrote this epistle in, in Acts chapter 2 said, you took the Lord of glory and by evil hands killed him, speaking to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin on the day of Pentecost. You killed him. So you are responsible for the death of the Savior. Our sins were placed on the just one. We are responsible for the death of the Savior. We are murderers. We are responsible for the death of the Savior. In spite of that, and he, the Greek word is there for those of you that are like Greek, Greek and basically it's the, the, he talking about being put to death means to violently kill. He didn't die in bed. He didn't die from COVID. He was violently murdered. And then he says he was made alive in the spirit. And that's the word that he used. The verb that he used means to make alive or to give life. It is a play on the word from which we get resurrection, which means to stand up again. So he was violently killed. He was gloriously given life again. And then the third one there in verse 22, it says, he has gone to heaven. He took a journey. He was elevated into heaven. Now, I want you to notice something. If you're listening, say amen. amen. This passage is often used. We'll cover this next week. But this passage is often used by people to say Jesus descended into hell. All right? Well, you read that passage and you find where it says that. It's not there. It does say he ascended into heaven. But it doesn't say he descended into hell. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, don't seek any other sense. And certainly don't read into the verse something that, is, that Peter didn't even include there. That's not what it says. It says that he ascended. He's gone back to heaven. He's been, he's uh, suffered violently. And because of this, God the Father has made him triumph over angels and authorities. Now, Peter's writing a pastoral letter. Edmund Clowney said it's probably the greatest example of a pastoral letter contained in the New Testament, even better than Paul's. And he wants to encourage the folks that he's writing to. And that includes you and I. He wants us to know that if we suffer and die for our faith, that God is going to raise us again by his spirit to be with him, to his abode. Heaven. That's what we call it. Uranus. We go back to be with God the Father because of the suffering Savior. 
Now, you and I live in the Western world. And Western people like to obsess over pain or sorrow. Not unique to the Western world. It's a human condition, but we do. And Peter challenges those that he's writing to, and that means you and I, to find courage in Christ's life. Because Christ himself suffered, again, in ways that are unimaginable to you and I. We can never say, God doesn't know what I've been through. Oh, yeah, buddy, he knows better than you what you've been through. Through his suffering, he was gloriously resurrected. His vindication occurred at his resurrection and is continuing now and will forever continue. Part of our worship in heaven will be worthy is the lamb that was what? Slain. We will, he will continually be vindicated. Next slide, if you would. So if we took the time this morning, we would go back to, uh, to Romans chapter 3. This is Paul's passage on, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Talks about propitiation. Talks about a number of things there. But what Peter is saying, basically, and he no doubt at this point had read Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. It circulated among the churches. So he had read this, and part of what he is writing here in verse 18 is a capsulization, a contraction, if you would, of what Paul has said in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. That Christ took upon himself the punishment due to us. The just one took on himself our unjustness. And he gave to us that believe. His righteousness. We've been adopted. We've been giving. We've been given the righteousness of God. We can't come to God without righteousness. And so it has to be given to us, given to us by Jesus Christ. God requires punishment for sin. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 3 as well. And he, he receives uh, satisfaction not from us. There is nothing we can do to satisfy God. The only one that ever satisfied him is Jesus alone. And so that is the reason that Jesus makes the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The just one dying for the unjust so that God might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is Romans 3.26. God is just, and this is something that is lost on people, but God is just because he doesn't wink at sin. He does what is necessary to take our unrighteousness and apply the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he removes sin. He doesn't wink at sin. As I said, no great conversations at the great white throne judgment. It's been done. 
God is just because he requires the penalty for sin to fulfill all righteousness. Thus fulfill all righteousness. Paul writes about this, Church of Rome, we studied this for a number of years, which was accomplished by Christ himself. It is through his righteousness that we are made just in the sight of God. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. That's the advantage of a believer. We've been brought back to God. And the only grounds for our being made just is the imputation of Jesus' righteousness to all who believe. And all who call out to him in repentance of sin and in faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ are born again. They have Jesus' righteousness. I have it. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have it. It's been imputed to you. One of the reasons that we're to live like Jesus lived is because we have within us the righteousness of Christ. Now we don't. Not always. So we're made just by what Jesus did. This righteousness is alien. Peter's writing to aliens. He wants them to know Jesus is imputing to you his righteousness. It's alien. It's outside of you. It's not inside of you. It's outside. It has to be placed inside of you by the Spirit of God. And so his righteousness comes from outside of us because of the suffering one. And the suffering one, Peter says, brings us back to God. He suffered for his people. He suffered so that you and I might have that example. Violently died on Calvary and then resurrected by the Spirit of God. Next slide. So where and when did Jesus suffer? And so this, we, we began to ask a series of questions, and we'll continue this next Sunday morning. Obviously, Peter harkens back to the cross. Now, Peter was not at the cross. He had betrayed, he had uh, denied the, rather the Lord Jesus, and he wormed his way out of uh, uh, Gabbatha, where Jesus was being tried, the praetorium, and went and wept. He wasn't there, but Peter knew what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he moves beyond the suffering. Notice what it says, that he might bring us to God being put to death, violently killed. Do you think Jesus feared death? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, let this cup pass from me, if it is your will. He knew what lay on the other side of death. He knew what the well, that the resurrection would restore him back to life. But he feared the last enemy, death. We fear the last enemy, death. That's what we read in the one of the previous verses that we were looking at. And although he was put to death in the flesh, violently killed, 
He resurrected. He ascended to heaven. He now has angels and authorities subject to him, as he's always had. So he suffered patiently. Now notice what it says here. I want to bring this to a close this morning. Look at verse 20. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now that's the, the New King James translation. But in other translations it says, when once God's patience. Look over to Second Peter chapter 3. And look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, again, we will read this verse in context. When it's read in context, it's quite a, it's, the thought process behind it is different from what most of us think today. God is patient. God was patient with Noah. God was patient with the ancient world. God is patient with sinners. But at some point, he says, my will shall be done. Christ was resurrected so that we might have the courage to face the accusations of the world. Next slide. I want to cover this and then we'll close this morning. He suffered once. Once for sins. If we had the time, we'd go look at Hebrews 9 and 10. And it mentions specifically that Jesus died once sins. This is important to the way we understand what Peter is writing about here. Jesus said it's finished. He didn't say it's been postponed. I've done, I've done 90% of it. I've got to come back and clean things up a little bit. No. It's finished. Once the completion of one act is done. Now, when the Reformers read this particular passage of Scripture and when they read Hebrews chapter 9, one of the reasons for the Reformation was the rediscovery of this truth. This began back around 1500, 15th, 16th century. You and I are part and parcel of what took place then, of the understanding. That's why history is so vitally important. When they read this, when they understood that Christ died once for all, one of the things that they did and one of the points of the 95 Theses that Martin Luther nailed to the door of the chapel of Wittenberg was the fact that the Catholic Mass was evil. The Mass is celebrated 
has been celebrated for hundreds of years as a bloodless sacrifice where Christ is again offered for sin. The Reformers understood from this passage, from the book of Hebrews, Christ died once. There is no need again for him to be offered. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is the symbology of the bread is his flesh and the juice is his blood. Most Catholic theology believes that it actually becomes the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's contrary to Scripture. There's a reason that we believe and teach what history has taught us for hundreds of years. Our sins, which are many, washed away once. Now we are to confess them for our own good. Christ's blood satisfied God the Father. He brought sin, he brought sinners from an alien righteousness without hope and without God, Ephesians 2 says, to an alien righteousness. You who were afar off. That's you and I. Without God and without hope. Have been brought near. That he might bring us to God. But to death and the Spirit, the gospel was not concluded at his, at his resurrection. The gospel is forever new. It's not just bullet points that we recite. The gospel is forever new. As believers, when we abide with God in his place, we will see the manifestation of the good news of Jesus Christ forever. The reality of a risen Savior. So he ascended, he went back to God. And what we see beginning in verse 19 is an example for believers of prior sufferings during a time that was much worse, much worse than they, the Roman, during this Roman time, and us. A lot worse in Noah's day than it is now. And God destroyed that much worse world. Because he knows how to deliver the righteous one from tribulation. Final slide. So that leads us to some questions. <coughs> Next slide. I'm sorry. My, my bad. Three main questions. 
Who are the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach? And when did he preach? We'll begin to cover that next Sunday morning. What Peter is saying is that when we suffer, we will eventually be triumphant as Jesus Christ. If we suffer unjustly, and we do, there is victory in that suffering because it, lead, it could lead to the salvation of others. Verses 13 through 17 talk about that. Sometimes in our lives it seems that all the demons of hell are winning. You look at the world today, sometimes it seems that way. But Peter wants us to know that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, and that if we commit ourselves to our faithful creator, to the redeemer, we're not only going to triumph over the world, but we'll triumph over the spirits too. And that's the comfort of these verses. The just for the unjust, put to death in the flesh, raised again in the spirit, so that he might bring us to God. What a savior we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this magnificent passage. And difficult though it may be, it is a reminder to us that the sufferings of Christ were eventually victorious in his life. He reigns supremely. The second Adam took upon himself the form of the first Adam so that we might be redeemed. We thank you for this beautiful passage that Peter wrote thousands of years ago now. And our prayer is as we close out this opportunity to worship this morning that you'd move in our hearts so that we might, as believers, that we might be comforted as unbelievers that we that they may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sweet will, your divine way, in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing a closing hymn in just a moment. And if you're here today, This is not normally, especially verses 19 through 20, not normally uh, an evangelistic passage. But it's interesting that it follows one. <laughs> so there's something there that the Lord wants us to know. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, all of these wonderful things that Peter is writing about and we've preached about this morning can be yours. And your requirement is, your responsibility is, that you acknowledge before him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that you call out in repentance of sin to this Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can save you. You believe and receive him as Lord and Savior. We can't do that, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sing, if you'll make your way out of the pew, we will be glad to 
lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord, or perhaps at the close of this service, you want to speak further, then certainly we can do that as well. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Now, Peter talks about baptism, but it's not the same baptism that we're used to seeing or reading about. Now, baptism doesn't save. It is obedience. If you're here today as a child of God, and you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we encourage you to follow him in believer's baptism today. It's a child of God. Yes, this is a, a difficult passage, but it's a passage meant to give us hope. The reality of hope is in the risen Savior. So thank him for what you've read this morning, what we will continue to expand. What number, Brother Vance? 285. 285, won't you come as we stand and sing?